Now, if you would, let's uh, please welcome our first speaker for today, Mr. David Conroy. Dave Conroy, Director of Emerging Technology for NAR, is an experienced engineer with a demonstrated history of innovation, over 15 years of technical experience in the real estate industry. Dave possesses a strong experience with blockchain and distributed ledger technologies, prototyping, software design, management, and networking. Please help me in welcoming, welcoming Mr. David Conroy. Hello, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me here today to talk about a topic that I personally uh, am you know, really, really passionate about, uh, and that is uh, emerging technology. Uh, this is actually a topic that I am so passionate about that uh, my wife really loves when uh, I have the opportunity to give presentations like this, uh, because then I have someone to talk tech with other than her. So, um, so I've got a lot of topics I want to cover today, like three big ones that I think are going to be the largest impact on real estate uh, in, in the next, uh, you know, uh, two to three years. So uh, let's jump right in. So as an emerging technology researcher for NAR, this, this is one of my favorite quotes, uh, and it's from renowned engineer and investor Chris Dixon. Uh, and he states, this was back in 2010, uh, that the next big thing will start out looking like a toy. And what Chris means by that is that you know, the reason why new technology, whether it's impacting real estate or not, when the next big thing comes out, it's often dismissed by incumbents or it sneaks by the existing players in an industry uh, because the initial use cases, um, you know, it, it kind of can seem, can seem like a toy. So, so why is that? So why is disruptive technology so often dismissed? In my opinion, it's a it's a couple of reasons. You know, uh, the first being that when technology is first launched, you know, the next big thing, it kind of you know the first iteration will often just undershoot people's needs. Uh, and I've got a perfect example of this. You'll see on the picture there. Uh, that's a Western Union telegraph. Uh, I don't know if people know this, but back in 1886, Western Union had the opportunity to buy out all of the telephone power. Uh, uh, patents from Alexander Graham Bell uh, at the price of just $100,000. Uh, the problem was uh, at the time the technology was new, it only been around for about 10 years, was still maturing. Uh, it only worked to local distances, right? Maybe uh, from one side of the town to the other or in, you know, in metro areas. And Western Union at the time, if you recall, you know, their main customers were the railroads. So they needed to be able to go across the country. Uh, so at that time in 1886, they said, you know, th this will never work for our customers. Uh, this is nothing more than a toy. Uh, there, there's no commercial value here. So they, so they declined uh, purchasing all of those patents. Uh, I, I think what their issue was, uh, is that when it comes to new technology, uh, people fail to anticipate how quickly technology can improve and be iterated upon. But not only that, um, how the adoption of the right technology can become exponential. And there, there are hundreds of examples of this, you know, uh, mainframe computers, uh, you know, uh, the people who built mainframe computers dismissed PCs when they first came out, uh, telecoms dismissed Skype, uh, Blackberry dismissed the iPhone touchscreen. Um, so, so why am I mentioning all this? Uh, that's because today the, 
three of the technologies that I'm going to be talking about, uh, which in my opinion will have a major impact on real estate. If you judge them just based off what they're able to do today, it will be very easy to dismiss them. Uh, and I urge, I urge this group and this audience uh, to, to not do so. So uh, a little bit about myself. Um, again, my name is David Conroy. I'm Director of Emerging Tech uh, for NAR. I've been in real estate for 13 years now. I actually got my start at the Massachusetts State Association of Realtors, uh, and I'm zooming in from, uh, from Boston today. Uh, personally, I'm a perpetual early adopter. I'm just someone who loves experimenting with tech. Uh, and, mo and most importantly, I, I try to test the viability of that tech uh, as it applies to industries like real estate. Uh, here's a quick example of me being early to the table. This is 2013, where I was uh, mining Bitcoin at my desk. Uh, I chose this example today because um, it, it fits with that the, the quote that I started with today, because people were on a regular basis coming into my office and asking, hey, what's that toy on your desk? Um, now, while the verdict might still be out on crypto, and we can talk about that a little bit more uh, towards the end of my presentation today, uh, it's without question one of the most disruptive technologies of the past decade. Um, and when it first came out, people just thought it was, you know, magic internet money. So today, the, uh, the, the technologies that I'd like to cover, uh, the first is augmented reality and how this could impact staging. Uh, I'll, I'll then talk about generative AI, which is a, which is a new area that, that I'm covering that'll have a drastic impact on listing photos and renovation previews. Uh, and then finally, I'll be discussing uh, what aspects of blockchain could impact the real estate and, and what traction we're, we're seeing so far. So let's uh, let's start with our first topic: augmented reality. I feel like I, I have to confess here when when I first um, I first got introduced to the concept of augmented and virtual reality uh, as a child of like the 80s and 90s. And I feel like augmented reality and virtual reality has been something that has been you know promised to me for my entire life, but it's never really materialized in a way uh, that it was advertised. Um, so up until very recently, this isn't something that I've been a very big fan of. I wasn't very bullish on how it's going to impact real estate. Um, uh, another confession, though, is that I'm also a uh, big Apple fanboy. I've got my MacBook, my iPad, my iPhone. And there are rumors now that they're getting into the game uh, of, of creating augmented reality headsets. So uh, now I'm back on board and excited to see the um, <laughs> the future of this technology. But uh, me being an Apple fanboy is not, not the only reason I'm excited about this. Uh, if uh, if you've been following their their latest updates, there are some incredible things that you're able to do right now with your uh, with your iPhone uh, due to their uh, most latest release of their operating system. So um, I'm sure many of you out there have have an iPhone. I'm sure many of you have already updated to iOS 16. Uh, this this uh, this version of, of the iPhone operating system was released uh, in Q4 of last year. And there are a number of features built in that could have uh, you know, incredible impact on the day-to-day -day lives of, of a realtor. Um, they also added in like the base layer of the technology, like, you know, like the into the core features of, of the phone, some uh, amazing new augmented reality tech that people who build apps for real estate can plug right into uh, and take advantage of. Uh, the one that I want to talk about today is called Room Plan. Uh, and at the surface, it can create 3D floor plans in seconds. I'm sure you've seen apps that can do that uh, 
that that can do that before. But there's there's some really interesting things that Apple has added in this last iteration that I think will be a, a total game changer for for staging and for uh, generation of floor plans. Uh, I'd like to show you how it works. So if you have a newer iPhone uh, or iPad, they come with a sensor that you might not be aware of called LiDAR. It's essentially, you can think of it like a built-in radar for your phone. So your, your new iPhone, it already has like a fantastic camera, you know, all smartphones do these days. If you're able to combine the camera with the radar sensor, you're, it enables incredibly accurate uh, measurement readings. So as you see in this example here, a realtor could just open up an app that takes advantage of this new Apple room plan, you know, walk around a room and um, not only will they have an accurate floor plan generated in seconds, but the real game changer here, and you'll notice if you pay close attention to what's happening in this graphic, is not only is it measuring, measuring the room, it's also recognizing objects in the room and their dimensions, right? So you'll see like this on the bottom of the screen there, the floor plan is being generated, but it also notices the desk. It also notices the windows. It notices the dimensions of the windows, the, the floor to ceiling height. Um, and again, so this is gonna be baked into the uh, Apple operating system. So any application like a realtor.com, an RPR, a, a brokerage app, a Cubicasa, anyone who wanted to take advantage of this tech can just plug right into it. So um, this is gonna be a game changer. And again, more than just floor plans, I think the object detection is where it's really going to impact you and your clients. Uh, so why is that? Why does it matter if we can detect what objects are in our room? Well, the, the answer for, for real estate, in my opinion, is if we can detect them, then we should be able to identify what they are. All right, so here's an example where we're able to detect there's a chair, a couch, an ottoman, a bookshelf, um, and we're able to not only get the measurements of a room, but identify the objects in it. Now, if we know what they are, then we should be able to remove them if we want, right? Kind of a you know virtual decluttering of spaces. Um, and remember, I was talking about that lidar, that radar sensor before. If we can, um, if we can identify them, uh, remove them, and we are aware of the dimensions of the rooms, uh, it's going to really. Uh, it's going to offer major enhancements to, to virtual staging. It's going to be virtual staging on, on steroids. So now that you know the dimensions of a room, uh, you could easily know uh, what furniture fits in there and look at in real time, um, you know, what different furniture sets could look like. Your clients could even uh, there will be a day soon where they'll be able to see what their existing furniture would look like in this new home that they're thinking about buying, even if that home uh, is, is already furnished. Uh, yeah, the, key, the real kicker here and why this is a game changer is this could all be done in real time while touring a home. So remember that office I showed you at the start when I was just showing you how it works? Um, now that we've detected the size of the room, the objects in the room, we can kind of like zero it out, almost hit like a reset button. And I'm, I'm sure there's times where you've been giving home tours where you know the uh, maybe the the unit of the home was was being rented out or wasn't being taken proper care of or it wasn't staged to show. Now someone like me who would have trouble picturing what it could look like at its full potential could be done uh, you know using kind of built-in features to Apple, right? Uh, 
and yeah, I'm just totally blown away that this can be done in real time. So from here, I'd see the next iterations being like, oh, well, what would it look like with a different paint color? What would it look like different uh, floorings, different artwork? Uh, it's I, the iPhones are already critical to your business. And I know that like when I first started with augmented virtual reality and I had that, that the picture of that headset, that it could look like a toy. Uh, again, don't dismiss this tech because uh, just because it looks like a toy, I think it'll have a major impact on your business going forward. And companies like Apple um, are making it easier and easier. Uh, but it's not just Apple who's working on this. Uh, Meta, uh, formerly Facebook, they've committed $10 billion uh, to, uh, on the, uh, to research this augmented uh, and uh, metaverse technology every single year for the next 10 years. So perhaps that, uh, you know, that dream I had, uh, you know, when I was 10 years old of, you know, virtual, uh, virtual reality being the next big thing that uh, it might actually come true now because there is uh, big business opportunities here and we have some of the largest companies in the world uh, focusing, you know, the majority of their R&D budgets towards this exact technology. And real estate is just a perfect playground uh, for, for these tools to, to gain adoption and uh, could just be useful to you and, and your clients. Um, so, so I know I joked about, you know, will virtual and augmented reality, um, you know, ever become true? Will that future ever be realized? Uh, I'm happy to say that I don't need to make those types of jokes with the next technology that I'm going to be talking about today, which is uh, generative AI. Uh, there will be no 30-year wait for this technology. Uh, even though it's only a year old, I've already started to see uh, uh, potential impacts for, for real estate. So has anyone here heard of generative AI? Um, again, I as an emerging technologist, it's my job to be looking five to 10 years out. So that's what, that's how I first started hearing about this technology uh, early 2022. Um, but it's absolutely exploded over the past year. Uh, you might've heard of terms like stable diffusion or chat GPT. Uh, it's essentially, you know, these artificial intelligence, um, this artificial intelligence software is now really starting to take shape and it's kind of, it's leaving the research labs, it's leaving the universities. And now it's like, okay, this, this powerful technology can actually be applied to industries like real estate. So I'm gonna talk about two types of generative AI today. Um, the first one um, being uh, the, the, the type of generative AI that you could use to alter images. Uh, and then I'll briefly talk about chat GPT. Uh, that technology is only about a month old, but the implications for real estate are so massive uh, that if, uh, I wouldn't feel right giving a talk about generative AI and not mentioning it. Uh, but uh, first, I'd like to talk about the um, the impacts, what it could mean for your listing photos. So generative AI sounds a kind of a generic term. Really what it does at, it mo at its most basic and most popular form is it allows people to create stunning artwork, indistinguishable from what uh, could be created by a human artist or a designer. Uh, it's an absolutely mind-blowing piece of technology. Uh, there are, uh, Google's working on it. There's a large company called OpenAI that Microsoft just invested in uh, at a $30 billion valuation. And this company's like a year old. It's already worth $30 billion. Um, and I don't wanna get too dystopian here, but with the recent advancements of this technology, you may never be able to believe what you see online again. What's that old quote? I think it's Edgar Allan Poe, actually. You know, believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see. 
Well, even if you only believe half of what you see on the internet today, uh, with the advancements of this tech, uh, you probably won't be believing that either. And to kind of show you how powerful this is, I'd love, I'd love to just run through a, a few quick examples outside of real estate, just so you can get a general idea of, of what's possible. And then we'll dive into how it'll uh, impact your business. So the way it works is you provide these AI systems with a simple prompt. You know, you kind of describe what you want to see and uh, what you say is what you get. So these are uh, actual text prompts that I've fed into these services, you know, uh, the, that Google's created or uh, OpenAI open has created. And within seconds, uh, they return uh, an image that was created by artificial intelligence, no human interaction, uh, and um, it's really quite incredible. So let's look at this first one. Uh, the prompt is a, a transparent sculpture of a duck that's made out of glass. So here we can see what's returned is, is incredibly realistic. Uh, but what really blows me away with this example is that the, I didn't mention anything about a painting, but the technology was smart enough to make sure that there was something behind the duck to prove that it was transparent. Let's look at, uh, let's get a few more. So here's another one, uh, a cute corgi that lives in a house made out of sushi. So uh, I realize how uh, absurd <laughs> this is, but again, it's pretty incredible that images like this uh, are being generated in seconds. Hopefully my introductory quote again, you know, the next big thing will start out looking like a toy is starting to make sense. You know, it's very easy to see like, oh, generative AI, stable diffusion, chat GPT. Uh, this is really fun for gags and gimmicks and creating houses made out of sushi for dogs. Uh, but what, I, what I'm about to show you in the next few slides, you should see, uh, oh, this is gonna change real estate. Uh, let's do one more, one more silly one. Uh, I love this one. Uh, I'd uh, so I fed this prompt into the AI engine. Uh, I'd love to see uh, teddy bears swimming at the Olympics uh, and not just swimming, but I specifically, I want to see them in the 400 meter butterfly event. Um, so within seconds, this image is returned. Looks like they've got the, the proper stroke here even. Uh, and what I found really fascinating about this one is that it looks like there's a drop of water on the screen. And, you know, these AI models were trained from millions and millions of photos from the internet. Um, and I wonder, was there some artifact that this AI model was trained on that introduced this, this drop of water on the screen? Was it some photographer who was too close to the pool? And then that image got into the training set. Um, just really, really fascinating how realistic this looks, uh, regardless of how, how silly it may seem. So. Hopefully I didn't lose anyone there. Hopefully there's no one in the audience thinking, what the heck does any of this have to do with real estate? What is this crazy guy doing building sushi houses and racing teddy bears? Well, let me show you. So this type, this type of generative AI, the image manipulation uh, generative AI, it's gonna have major impacts over three aspects of real estate. The first is gonna be renovation previews. Uh, this, the second is going to be listing photo modifications. I'm sure many of you in the audience right now are already paying for services that um, improve your listing photos prior to going to the MLS. You know, things like uh, you know, increasing brightness, cropping, you know, doing those like automatic fixes to make images just look better uh, before going to the MLS. Uh, and then finally, 
I'm sure there are realtors in the room now that uh, pay a significant fee to websites like Getty or other stock photo websites uh, to be able to use graphics on their websites and their marketing, um, which can be very costly, up to $500 an image that might be able to use technology like this uh, to, to save some money with their stock photos. Um, so let's see how effective this can be used in real estate. Uh, before the ones I started with, those were you just gave it like a, a, a kind of a blank canvas. Uh, you just gave it a sentence and it returned an image. Uh, what's really cool about this technology, though, is that you can start with an existing image and have it edited based off a prompt. So here we have a, a, a photo from a listing on the on the left hand side there. But obviously, the um, you know there looks like they're building some type of in law suite in the basement. Uh, it's still being renovated. I see a bunch of appliances there. It looks like a dishwasher, maybe a stove, um, maybe a, a small wine fridge for a bar. And you know this doesn't look great. Uh, this wouldn't look great in a uh, uh, in, in a listing, in my opinion. Um, but what if we applied generative AI to it? What if I were to ask the machines, you know, what this might look like if the uh, renovation had been finished? So I upload this picture into the the artificial intelligence models, and I, I can give it a, a complex prompt, and it's amazing what it will re return. So I, uh, this, is a, this is from a Matterport scan, this one on the left. Uh, I uploaded it into, uh, into the AI, and I said, hey, uh, remove everything in this room, paint the walls white, uh, add a modern kitchen in the back with, with blue cabinets, and faster than I could even open up Photoshop on my MacBook, uh, it ha it will return uh, thousands of different variations for what I requested. Now, I, I, I want to be clear that some of these images are a bit cherry picked. It takes you know a few iterations to find one uh, that might work, but it's crazy that uh, with that very specific uh, instructions, you know, remove everything in the room, paint the walls white, add a modern kitchen in the background, and have the um, the modern kitchen have blue cabinets that it's able to return this. Now, I'm not saying you ever use, I'm not saying you should ever use uh, photos modified this heavily in the listing, but if you had a client like like me who's not very uh, good at picturing how things might look, being able to just generate thousands of different ways uh, this um, you know this in-law suite could look uh, without needing a contractor, without needing Photoshop, um, it's uh, it's going to change how people think of uh, of renovation previous. Um, let's look at some more um, fun stuff you could do with, uh, with with listing photos with generative AI. Uh, so here's another listing photo. Um, you know, this is a beautiful uh, Cape home. Uh, it's got a nice big backyard. It looks like they got some area for entertaining in the back. Um, but imagine you sent your photographer out, and then the seller was. Uh, and you're talking to your seller and you said, hey, maybe we move this sand pit. Uh, maybe it, you know, uh, maybe it narrows the audience of people who would be interested in this home. If, if we had the sand pit there, let's just get rid of it. Uh, well, now, instead of having to pay to have it removed and, you know, sending your photographer back out or paying someone to just Photoshop it out, you can simply ask, you upload this photo to the AI and say, um, you know, please remove the sand pit. And, and like that, it's it's gone. So it, it it's, it, it's smart enough to know what a sand pit is, where it is in the photo, 
Uh, it's smart enough to know that you asked to remove it and it's able to remove it. And then it's also context aware enough to, uh, to know what to put in its place. So it just filled the, the empty space in with the, with the grass. So yeah, say you, uh, you had a client like me who you know, wants to buy a cave house, which I do. And uh, but one of the main reasons I want to do it is I want to have a fire pit in the backyard uh, and I'd love to have a patio. But again, you know, I, I'm not a, not a visual person. I, 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 or I, I need to see it. I can't, I can't imagine it. Uh, the AI can handle that as well. Um, so instead of just um, giving the simple command of remove the fire pit, you can daisy chain these commands together and say, um, you know, remove the sandbox, add a fire pit and a brick patio, kind of string the commands together. Uh, and it's, uh, it's smart enough. Uh, to give you a general idea of what that could look like with the existing home. Um, and again, it'll, if you just keep hitting refresh on it, it'll just keep generating hundreds or thousands uh, of these different images until you find one that's close enough to what you're looking for, where you then might be able to call a contractor or even email a contractor this photo and be like, hey, here's before and after, what do you think this would cost? All right, imagine how much time that would save. Uh, no Photoshop, no human interaction, just a simple sentence, what you say is what you get. And the mind-blowing thing about this is it's like a penny or two an image. So uh, just incredibly powerful, incredibly cheap, available today. Um, no need to wait 30 years for this like virtual reality. Um, and we're just starting to see, uh, you know, real estate startups being like, oh my God, I could build a whole company on this and then you know, start selling my, my services to realtors. So you, you will start seeing this uh, in offerings from uh, maybe your brokerage or from uh, you know, uh, MLSs perhaps, uh, and just be so much cheaper than the existing image editing apps. Um, let's look at one more. So uh, and say you did, they, your client didn't want a fire pit, but instead they wanted a pool, same thing, remove fire pit, add pool. And you know, you're, you're given you know, dozens of, 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 thing, of previews of how this could look. So renovation previews, like that in-law suite in the basement, um, uh, listing photo modifications, like the, the sand pit and the fire pit in the pool. I, I believe this, this technology is gonna completely revolutionize uh, how these things are done. And again, what's kind of scary is that it's only about a year old. Um, uh, so, that, so, so there's one, one other way um, beyond the renovation and the listing photos that, uh, that I mentioned briefly off the top, how generative AI will impact real estate, and that is stock photo generation. This is actually an area where I've gotten um, uh, dinged on myself, uh, accidentally using images uh, without the proper license and getting a call from legal and saying like, oh, hey, you have to remove this image from your blog post. You know, I thought it was an open license on the image, but uh, but apparently it wasn't. You know, causes a lot of headaches, right? It's a it's actually quite a large liability for for realtors because uh, if you're using stock photos, there are companies out there that will just scour the internet looking for improper use of photos, and then they'll they'll send you demand letters. Uh, it's actually like there, there's so many trolls out there that this improper use of stock photos uh, could could really uh, be a thorn in your side as, as a realtor, but Generative AI can help with that. So instead of you know, paying a stock photo website, say you had a marketing brochure, again, my, my Boston influence is showing here. Uh, say you, you wanted to create a, a website or a business card or a brochure, 
and you wanted some really you know beautiful homes to to put on the cover of it um but maybe you don't want to pay a photographer to go out or maybe you don't uh maybe there's licensing issues with the photos or you're worried about you know can i use this photo for the for this um this usage now it doesn't matter you don't need to use real homes anymore you can provide prompts like before. Remember, I was doing the, the teddy bear and the sushi. Well, you can give it very specific real estate prompts and it handles those just as well as it does the transparent duck and things like that. Right. So we give it a prompt, say, hello, AI. I'd love a Cape house with two or three stories. I want a moderately steep pitch gable roof, a large central chimney. And, you know, because I'm going to use this in my marketing in the background, I want there to be very little ornamentation. I kind of just want it to, uh, to blend in. So here are four homes that was, um, that was returned uh, using this technology. Um, None of these homes are real. No one owns these. No photographer, no photographer owns the rights to these photos. No one can sue you for using them in your content. Uh, they're all generated by AI. So anyone who uses uh, stock photos in their email marketing, their websites, their brochures, and are paying hundreds of dollars per, uh, it might be worth throwing a few dollars at these systems uh, to see if you can generate something that would be suitable for, uh, for your use case. So renovation previews, listing photo modifications, and stock photos, um, <laughs> this, this is only a year old, and those are uh, three ways, just the image modifications uh, side of generative AI that will impact real estate, but, but there are others as well. Um, if, if you're heavy on LinkedIn like I am or, or social media, you've probably heard this term uh, over the past few weeks. It's actually only came out about six weeks ago, and that is uh, chat GPT. So we're kind of um, kind of shifting gears here from the uh, image manipulation side of, of AI to uh, this new tool that just happens to be created by the same companies. Um, and I, I just couldn't talk about generative AI without mentioning this tech because it's absolutely everywhere today. Um, so while Generative AI can be very useful for editing images. This new ChatGPT is designed specifically for conversational engagements. So when I talk about conversational engagements, I'm not talking about those silly chat bots you see on websites that are just like decision trees where you can tell there's it just, um, you know, there's no real intelligence behind it. They're a hassle to use. Whenever I'm using them, I'm like, oh, just connect me to a live operator. I, I, I really hate that customer service is kind of being replaced by these stupid widgets on, on websites. It's been, I feel like it's been a real decline in service on the internet due to uh, what we traditionally know as chatbots. Um, but what's crazy about this is that in just a, in a matter of, of weeks, it seems, uh, the examples that have come out, it's like they've replicated a human level intelligence in the chatbots. So it's it's gone from, you know, if X, then Y, uh, or if A, then B in the responses. It is now uh, nearly at the level where it's indistinguishable uh, from uh, having an interaction with an actual human. And, and, and the reason why I, I felt like I had to mention this today is just how the how explosive the usages have been. Um, in the first five days, this technology was accessed by over a million people. Uh, that took Netflix four years to do. 
that took Facebook the better part of a year. I think it was 10 months before Facebook had a million users. Uh, Chat GPT had a million users in five days. Looks like we have a poll here. Okay. I'll give you a second to, to answer the poll. So Chat GPT, what can it do? I think the uh, initial use cases we're going to see are from people like software engineers or copywriters, because uh, that's that's kind of the use cases that have have uh, have been shown publicly first. Like uh, Chat GPT, please write me some JavaScript that listens to the keyboard strokes and takes a picture from my webcam every time I hit the letter S, and you you give that request, and within seconds it'll give you fully documented code that works, including all the test cases. And all of a sudden, your job as a software engineer has gotten a lot easier. Um, also, copywriters, say you wanted to write an article about why your town is the best one to live in. Uh, you can ask the, the chat GPT, hey, write me a, uh, act like a real, you can actually say this, act like a realtor and tell me why people should move uh, into Lansingburg uh, in three paragraphs and add a joke. And it will write a blog post for you. Uh, that is passable for um, most people wouldn't even be able to detect it wasn't written by a human. And then you can just personalize it for your own. Um, and again, even though this is only a few weeks old, the company's already starting to build services on this. Uh, there's a fun one out there that's called Do Not Pay, which uses chat GPT to negotiate uh, contracts with uh, Xfinity and Comcast. I don't know if you've called one of those lines recently to try to lower your bill, but it can take quite a while. It can be frustrating. Now uh, you just kind of use the technology against them. You use chatbots against them. And this company claims that they save an average of $100 per person uh, when they have their chatbot negotiate with Xfinity's chatbot. It's kind of crazy. We've got AIs negotiating with AIs. It's a pretty wild future if you think about it. So I think eventually this uh, chat GPT will be used in real estate. Uh, first couple of use cases that I predict are home search. Uh, if people aren't really sure where they want to live, but they know the, um, you know, the types of neighborhoods or, or uh, features of the neighborhoods that they're looking for, you could ask Ch Chat GPT and get a recommendation on where to live. That should be a little bit scary for a realtor. Um, scheduling sh home showings, you know, that anything that's kind of like customer service level uh, tasks that can be easily handled by, say, an admin. I believe some of those entry level customer service tasks will get eaten up by this technology. Um, things like lead scoring, lead qualification, being able to tell if like, you know, an internet lead that you got from a portal uh, is actually willing to buy, uh, kind of that like first contact scoring of leads and having it actually sound like it's coming from, uh, from you, the realtor, using your voice and your tone. I think that part will be eaten up a little bit first. And this is a little dystopian, but uh, just like I was talking about before, these uh, chatbots are now negotiating with Comcast to lower bills. There's a chance in the future that um, these bots will be, uh, will be negotiating with you on properties. You might be receiving offers from chatbots in the future uh, and having to uh, present those offers to your buyers. So that's way out there. That's five or 10 years out. I don't mean to scare anybody, but this technology makes it so easy that you might not know who your offers are coming from uh, in the future. So that's the far dystopian level, but I don't think we'll get there in a long time. Up first, it'll save you a lot of time um, 
with, with you know things like lead scoring and, and such like that. But uh, a fun fact uh, on this one, you see this logo here um, on this page. This is I I used one of the um, the previous tools I showed, and I said, hey. Um, please generate a logo for a company that it looks like it uses chatbots to sell houses. Uh, and that's the logo, that's the logo it, it brought back. So um, do I think realtors have anything to, to worry about it in the near term? No. no. Uh, do I think some people could do some really crazy things with this in the future? It's certainly something to, to keep an eye on. All right. So to recap, you know, we talked about augmented reality in the start. Uh, we're talking, uh, we just finished talking about generative AI, what it can do for, for images. Dave, yeah, we actually have some questions online. If I may jump in, sure. How do you see the realtor community use, utilizing this technology without creating distrust with the general public? Is yeah. it important that we're very explicit as this is more of a see what you can do type opportunity? Right. Uh, great. Great question. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I'm on the um, I'm on the the board of directors at the Real Estate Standards Organization, and you know we we talk about this uh, quite a bit. Uh, it's it's obvious that uh, unfortunately misrepresentation can be an issue when it comes to um, you know uh, photos that are used in listings. Um, I think that this is a another strong case for. Um, organizations like the realtor associations uh, where we uh, you know all agree to you know comply with um, you know with, with code of ethics that would um, you know prevent us from uh, using an image in a way that could misrepresent a property uh, what I would uh, hope for this tech and it's yet to be seen is that these tools are added on the consumer side of uh, of a uh, of a listing so maybe on um, on a website that displays IDX or on an MLS uh, page or a um, a portal where you're uploading the photos of the properties as it exists. And then the consumer can use this technology to then envision what it might look like. And that kind of, I, in my opinion, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, and I actually have presented this, this technology with NAR legal counsel. Um, if you allow, if, if the consumers are the one using this technology to tweak the images, I feel that kind of sh shifts some of the liability down down to them, where they no longer, where they would have a hard time saying that you misrepresented a property because you gave them the original image and then they edited it after the fact. So, uh, but it, it's a it's a concern because uh, it it will make misrepresentation easier, um, and I, I'm sure that there there will be bad actors out there. Um, <laughs> the the funny thing is, uh, and the, I apologize if I sound like a crazy person, but we're gonna probably need AI uh, to detect images that have been modified by AI, uh, and then then flag them accordingly. Because as as a human, we we won't be able to tell the difference. So um, wonderful, great, great question. But that's um, we have a couple more. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like our agents really like these tools that you're showing us. Could you share some of the names of the different softwares that you're discussing, or should they just type in generative AI tools in Google search? Um, yeah. I know Jasper.ai is one of them, but can yeah, you share the Jasper, names of these tools? Yeah, so Jasper is a great one that when I mentioned like, oh, copywriters or blog writers, 
um, are going to get a real benefit from this initially. Uh, Jasper is a great one. Uh, the tools that I've shown today, um, the early ones with like the sushi house and the uh, teddy bear, that was, called, that was a project from Google called Imagine. Uh, I-M-A-G-E-N. That one is okay, but it can't do the editing of images. So therefore, I don't think it really applies to real estate. Uh, the one where I was, you know, modifying, uh, uh, doing renovation previews and listing photo modifications, that is a piece of software called DALE2 or DALI, kind of, you know, the, um, you know, the, the artist for the melting clocks, DALI, uh, DALI2, it's called. And that's made by a company called OpenAI. Uh, yeah, and OpenAI is the company that was just invested in by Microsoft last week, $10 million, $30 billion valuation. Uh, now, OpenAI is also the company that built ChatGPT. So, um, yeah, some some search terms I would use would be ChatGPT, OpenAI, Stable Diffusion, um, and DALE2. And you can get access. These are all publicly available. You you can get like 100 free images a month, and then if you want to do more, you can pay. You can pay uh, pay for it like that. Wonderful. And is there any indication in the metadata of a photo that indicates um, that it has been altered by AI? Uh, there isn't, but that, you know, I just mentioned my um, my seat on the RISO board. That would be a um, certainly something that we, we could try to influence. Uh, we already have um, fields in the data dictionary that'll, that, um, that'll be coming out in the next few months that, that will at least flag in the MLS if an image has been modified, but that still relies on the person inputting the photo to select that. Uh, I love the idea of, um, I love the idea of using metadata to automatically detect it. Um, uh, but again, that would assume a world that uh, there, there's no bad actors and people would be willing to add that metadata. Thank you, Dave. I see a question there. I also have uh, an issue with uh, overly enhanced images. I, I, it, it, something about that bothers me quite a bit. And yeah, this technology makes it easier. <laughs> when I first bought my uh, my first condo in 2009, I saw an amazing home. Photos online looked great. Um, it looked like it was moving ready. Uh, I showed up and the kitchen was missing a wall, like an exterior wall. And the kitchen just opened up to the backyard and there was there was no, no photo of that. So ever since then, I've always, you know, I feel like it's hard to trust them. And this is this is gonna make it even harder. Okay, um, covered a lot. I think I've got maybe 10, 20 minutes left to cover blockchain. Thank you for um, thank you for jumping in there with the questions because a lot of these topics are so, so different. Uh, I wouldn't want to um, uh, move on to the next one without uh, addressing those first. So um, blockchain, this, I, believe it or not, I've been talking about blockchain for about 10 years. I first got, yeah, as I showed in that picture at the start, I got into Bitcoin mining in 2013. Uh, there have been times where I thought this technology is just going to change the real estate industry overnight. Uh, I worked for NAR in 2015 uh, when a lot of these you know, newer blockchains came out. Uh, I quit my job and I moved to New York City to, to work on a blockchain and real estate startup uh, because I thought this was just going to be so impactful that the uh, it will fundamentally change the industry. Um, but ultimately, I was too early. And in hindsight, I was very, very naive. Um, but it's this technology that doesn't seem to be going away. It seems to be coming in waves. You know, 
like four-year hype cycles. You know, two years ago it was NFTs, everything, uh, and then you know the past couple of months, you, you know, some scams are um, scams are revealed with FTX crash, and all of a sudden, you know, the stigma is reattached to blockchain, and people are like, oh, it'll never impact real estate again. But um, I do have some content on it that I'd like to share, and I think is important for realtors to know about. Um, and I've also kind of having worked on this for 10 years, uh, it's such a hard topic to explain, but I, I think I've got some analogies after presenting on it, no joke, probably 200 times uh, that should resonate with, uh, uh, with realtors and, you know, how this, uh, how this technology is, I hate to say it, maybe trying to cannibalize uh, the real estate unsuccessfully, but I, I do believe that they're trying. Um, so my premise is, my my thought is that blockchains are attempting to speed run how real estate is owned, financed, and invested in. Now, the, there are probably a lot of people in the room there who aren't familiar with that term, speed running. Um, so I'd like to uh, just do a quick uh, side story to explain what speed running is. Uh, so if you're not heard, if you haven't heard of speed running, you probably have heard of these. Uh, this is the Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, these were released in 1983, uh, and I, uh, again, this is this is kind of a tangent, but um, in 1989, I was I was born in Ireland, and I, I moved to the U.S. in 1989. I was six years old, and my parents had this brilliant plan uh, uh, to keep me from being homesick or missing my friends. They bought my brother and I uh, one of these Nintendos as you know, kind of conditions to the move. And it totally worked. We loved it. We were obsessed. We, uh, and we weren't upset at all about the move after that. So we would spend weeks playing this game. You know, we had, we had Mario Brothers. We had a few others, Tetris. Um, but back then, you know, these games, they didn't have hard drives. You couldn't save your games. You know, you, you had three lives to be Mario. And uh, if you, you know, fell off the wrong cliff or you got burned by fire, you were done. Back to square one. Uh, so beating these games, like beating Super Mario, beating Bowser or whoever's at the end, um, was a monumental task, especially for a kid. It took uh, my brother and I months to beat, uh, to finally get the skills to be able to beat Mario. And it, would it took us hours and hours on the one time we were successful. Uh, so in the context of speed running, does anyone out there have any guesses? You can put it in the Q&A on what the world record is for beating Super Mario Brothers. Again, it took me and my brother months. Um, the, the people out there in, in the world who refer to themselves as, as speedrunners, uh, world record uh, for beating this game is four minutes and 55 seconds. <laughs> so you gotta be thinking, how's that possible? You know, there's nine levels and six, six boards on each level. How can you do this in four minutes and 55 seconds? Well, uh, the way these people do it is they learn the game and the systems inside and out, right? These people will take advantage of every shortcut, every warp zone, every loophole. They might even, you know, break the rules. You know, if there's a glitch in the game, you know, that the programmers who made it didn't intend and it allowed you to skip ahead faster, uh, these speedrunners will do anything uh, to get to the finish line as soon as possible. Uh, and when I think about blockchain, and this is, this is a world I was, I was and still am very deep into, when I think about how blockchain is going to impact real estate, to me, it really feels like 
we're just really trying to speed run everything, right? We're trying to get to the closing table uh, by any means necessary, even if it means perhaps breaking some of the rules or cutting people out, um, or, you know, we're just gonna go for this and then, you know, pay the fines later. Uh, it's it's really, really the wild, wild west. Uh, and these are just kind of the same tactics I see when blockchain is being applied to real estate, right? Taking advantage of every shortcut, taking advantage of glitches, loopholes, trying to get to the finish by any means necessary. So hopefully I haven't already bummed you out totally, but that's kind of how it feels uh, as someone who's very familiar with this tech uh, when I see a lot of the ways it's trying to be implemented. So um, we'll talk about three things. Uh, I'm gonna go a little bit quick here. We're gonna talk about cryptocurrency overall. Uh, then we're gonna talk about other things that blockchain can do besides crypto. And that's things like NFTs and how that could be used in real estate. And then finally, we know how important financing is as an as aspect of real estate. So we'll talk about how blockchain could have an impact there. Uh, again, this is a technology that I've explained to realtor audiences to, uh, since 2015. And I used to get really technical about hashing and cryptography and timestamps and blocks and ledgers. And really none of that matters. Really all you need to know about a blockchain is that it's a new way of thinking about how inf information could be stored. It's like a new type of database. Uh, the main differences are with the, uh, with the blockchain as a database that any record that's added to it is append only uh, and that any information that's on a blockchain should be easily auditable by anyone involved. So imagine a title system that kept a record of chain of title where you could always add something new to it. You couldn't remove anything from the history and it was very easy and accessible for anyone um, to audit the ownership of a property. That's kind of like the pie in the sky on paper. Uh, like one of the first examples people go to, like, oh, this blockchain will be perfect for title. It's obviously much more complicated than that, but essentially it's a database that's append only, can't rewrite history, and easily auditable by everyone involved. Um, and yeah, so then, while if you focus on the technology, it can get very cloudy very quickly, but the idea is very simple. You want, uh, what they provide is an independent, verifiable, trustworthy record of events and transactions. Uh, yeah, imagine a real estate where a verifiable record of ownership um, could allow for parties in a deal to at least agree upon a common digital history of a property. Uh, I, I believe if we were ever to get to that uh, dream state, that that would add incredible efficiencies in a transaction. Um, but uh, we've got a ways to go before before this this really uh, really impacts real estate. Uh, the first people uh, first question people ask when they want me to present on blockchain, I think they really just want me to present on crypto. Uh, but crypto is just one application that's powered by blockchain. Uh, but it's it is the most popular and the most used. And since the the this whole industry whole blockchain and crypto industry is kind of propped up on speculation and trading, um, we have to talk about it. So cryptocurrency is just like regular currency, except it is purely digital. Um, it can be used pseudo-anonymously like cash on the internet. Uh, but the main difference is that they don't rely on central parties like banks or PayPal or Venmo. Uh, they are instead transacted directly peer-to-peer. -peer. Uh, for the most part, they're cheap and free to use. Um, easy to use. The you know, settlement time when you're doing a crypto transaction is usually about 30 seconds. Um, 
there is an absurd amount of number of digital currencies out there. By my last count, there's 22,000 different cryptocurrencies. Uh, the market cap combined of all of those cryptocurrencies is about a trillion dollars. Uh, there are over 500 places on the internet where you can go to purchase these. Um, but a, a not so fun fact is that since 2004, 91% of cryptocurrencies uh, are dead. So these things are highly volatile. Um, they can be created by anybody. Um, they can be pumped up and uh, it's, it's, it's very buyer beware when it comes to this stuff. Um, but luckily, uh, blockchain can be used uh, for more than just cryptocurrency, right? Uh, which brings me to the real estate use cases. So um, everyone in this group uh, understands how verifiable ownership is a critical part of any transaction. You know, and like we said, there's, you know, title industry, billion dollar industry um, that uh, has been built to focus kind of just on that one aspect, you know, the verifiable ownership and ensuring that. Um, and as part of my emerging tech research, I'm starting to see in other industries uh, how things are provably owned is changing. Uh, and that's, um, that's um, I'll, I'll take some examples here from the art and collectibles world, right? This is kind of similar to real estate. Say if you have a piece of art or like a Michael Jordan rookie card, uh, if you want to sell that and you want to get max value for that, uh, similar to real estate, like the provenance of that item means anything. So if it was a piece of art, if you had... Um, Anything to prove legitimacy or authenticity, it increases the value. So uh, documented ownership history, uh, certificates of authenticity. Uh, if the art piece had, you know, exhibition stickers from when the piece was displayed. Uh, if you had a photo with the artist with the piece of art or a newspaper clipping of the artist talking about it. If you add all those pieces together, all of a sudden your piece of art is more valuable. Uh, but one of the problems there is that all of these verifications and audits, they all rely on third parties. You have to send these things off. Uh, it's expensive, it takes time, and, uh, you know, it's a difficult process. So what we're starting to see in the art world is a new way to verify ownership, and that's uh, NFTs, or non-fungible tokens. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this topic because it's something that's kind of cooled off a bit, but it is something I get a lot of questions on, so I want to mention it. Um, if you're not sure what NFTs are, really what they are is snippets of code that lives on a blockchain. They're, they're called smart contracts. Uh, what they're used for is essentially just like an identifier, a one-of-one one identifier that could be used for uh, could be used for a digital piece of art, like a profile picture or a, one of those crypto punks or bored apes that you might have heard about last year, uh, or it could represent a, um, a real-world physical items. And uh, what makes them different than cryptocurrencies is that they're um, again they're one for one, similar how every home is unique and identifiable. Uh, 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 every home is unique and every transaction is unique and NFT represents a unique one-of-a-kind um, digital or physical item. So people saw how uh, ownership is being represented in art and collectibles online with the NFT boom last year and they're like hey it's really easy for people to verify ownership of those and trade them back and forth. Wouldn't it be great if we could do the same thing with houses? Uh, so companies started doing that. Uh, there's a company called Proppy that, in my opinion, is a major milestone, uh, uh, whether I like it or not. Uh, but last year, they they sold multiple homes with uh, using NFTs. Uh, uh, I've known Natalia, the founder, for, for quite a while, going back to my like early blockchain days. And 
Uh, I must give her credit. She's an incredible entrepreneur, uh, visionary, is always pushing the envelope. Really, really incredible what, what they're able to do. Um, but this, this, uh, these sales from property last year, they're different from what we've seen over the past five years, right? You know, you know, going back to 2018, 2019, you'd see people like buying a house with Bitcoin. Really all they were doing was selling their Bitcoin for cash and then buying a house the normal way. Uh, this is different. This is a, um, an LLC that owns a home where the ownership of the LLC is tied to the owner of the NFT. So this is, this is a real home that was sold in Florida. It was on the MLS. Uh, it went auction style. Um, it was sold in about eight hours. Uh, and for a few hundred thousand dollars of crypto, ownership of this property was traded in, uh, in a few hours. Does this remind you of my speed running analogy, right? Like this normally takes us six to eight weeks. We've got you know, inspections, we've got contingencies, we've got diligence. Uh, how is this possible? Well, again, they're kind of using that LLC. Uh, since they're trading ownership in an LLC, not a property, they kind of use those warp zones to, to, to skip past things that, you know, might add friction to a transaction, or I would say, you know, add consumer protections to a transaction. Um, and property, they believe they've created a legal, legal framework uh, where they can do this with any property anywhere in the world. Um, it hasn't really taken off, uh, but still props to them for always pushing the, uh, the envelope when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, so when you think blockchain, it's more than just Bitcoin, more than just Ether or Ethereum. Uh, and it, it's more than just like NFTs of profile pictures. People are actually playing around with this stuff for houses. Hasn't really taken off yet. Something to keep an eye on. Um, so if NF NFTs are being used to prove ownership in our industry, we know that ownership depends heavily on financing. And that's the final aspect of blockchain that I want to talk about today uh, is how it can impact in the financing side of real estate. So um, before I talk about the blockchain side of it, I just wanted to get us all on the same page with some of the terms you're going to be using. Uh, we're all familiar with traditional finance, right? We wouldn't be able to do uh, jobs as realtors without this. Everyone's familiar with, with TradFi, lending, borrowing, trading, exchanging, insuring. These services have existed for hundreds of th or thousands and thousands of years. Uh, but for some people, they can be difficult to get access to, right? If you're not W-2, if you're not a U.S. citizen, um, some of these traditional finance services can be difficult to, to get access to. You know, they rely on credit checks, proof of funds, lots of sharing of PII, uploading PDFs, copies of driver's licenses, like getting art verified, getting access to traditional finance is a process that involves centralized parties and it can just take a while and it can be difficult for some. So this is kind of where blockchain again, tries to come save the day. Uh, and another great example of speed running is those same services that we're all used to get, you know, getting a loan at a bank. Um, they, these things are now possible uh, without those centralized parties uh, using blockchain uh, and the, the, you know, if you're curious about this, the term you want to search is DeFi or decentralized finance. It essentially enables borrowing, lending, insuring, and trading without needing a bank, uh, accessible to anyone in the world, and um, in some cases being uh, able to be used pseudo-anonymously. Uh, this is how I bought my car. So I've got a used CRV. You know, it's not, it's not a flashy vehicle, but um, because I'm so interested in this technology and I have uh, a decent amount of crypto personally, I was able to use crypto as a collateral uh, to get a loan for a um, 
a CRV. So I was able to use crypto to um, buy a car without a credit check, without a, um, without a bank. Um, and if I can do this for a car, I'm sure people out there uh, could do this for a home. So, and, and like NFTs, we're starting to see a little bit of activity uh, on DeFi and real estate. Uh, there's companies like Milo out of Florida who will fully underwrite home purchases for you if you lock up enough of your Bitcoin with them as collateral. Um, again, um, you know, th these can be used for, for loans, it can be used for collateral. We're just starting to see a few companies dip their toe in this water. I'm actually a big fan of that Milo company. I've met with the founder a few times. Uh, this is also interesting because it's attracting a lot of investment from venture capitalists. Like uh, people see, you know, how these tools could be used um, to impact the world of financing. So they're, they're starting to be millions and millions of dollars being invested in this space. But, uh, but really at, at the end of the day, it's something very new and something I don't believe you need to worry about yet. Um, one quote I will leave you with though, um, is that in 2021, uh, one in nine buyers sold cryptocurrency to help with a down payment. So that was a, a, a survey done by Redfin. So uh, one in nine people sold crypto to help buy a home in 2021. So while some of the stuff I'm talking about today is a little far-fetched, you know, NFTs, loans without banks, it's a little crazy. But if one in nine people are selling crypto to buy a home, this should at least be an area you're a, a little bit familiar with in case, you know, you know, one in nine of your next clients owns these type of assets and wants to use them uh, for a home purchase, right? We want you to be able to help, help your clients. People out there have this stuff. It's uh, just one of those things that it's another tool in your tool bag to, uh, if you're familiar with it. So um, again, Blockchains are trying to speed run how real estate is owned and financed with NFTs and DeFi. So back to my, my opening quote, uh, next big thing will look like a toy, uh, whether it's uh, chatbots negotiating your Comcast deal, whether it's uh, you know, uh, AI bots uh, editing your, your listing photos. Uh, today, it's very easy to maybe underestimate this stuff, you know, especially if you've been in the industry for a long time, like, hey, this probably won't impact my business. Uh, I, I urge you to at least stay up to date with it, state with this sort of thing. Uh, you're already doing the right thing, attending a continuing education like this um, to help stay educated on this. Because, uh, I mean, think back to when you first got on social media, you first got Facebook. Uh, did you think that was going to be a massive uh, business tool? Pro probably not. It probably felt like something more more fun to do with friends and family. And now, um, it's you know one of a great lead source for many many realtors. So I, I, again, it's my job. NAR uh, compensates me for looking five or ten years out. Hopefully, I didn't lose anybody looking too far out. Because again, these things that look like toys today could have a major impact on on your business uh, on your business. And if this technology interests you, uh, I'd love to continue the conversation. You can find me at uh, dave.realestate. That will connect you to my LinkedIn. Um, and as you can tell for the past hour, uh, I really do love this stuff. So I, I could talk all day. I've probably talked too long already. Uh, so with that, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it up to questions and uh, make sure I leave time for our next speaker. If not, Mr. Conroy, I have a question. Um, do you see uh, any potential problems with uh, personal copyright ownership 
issues regarding AI-generated photos that are used in a listing for realtors? I, I do. Um, right now, it's, um, and I, 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 this is one of those times I really wish I had our legal counsel on the call with me. Uh, but right now, the, there's just, uh, this, this is yet to be played out, right? Um, you know, before when I was talking about stock photo generation um, and spending pennies instead of $500 each, uh, guess who has a massive lawsuit against the companies who built these tools? Uh, Getty Images. Um, so, Right now, as it's currently stated, um, these images are not copyrightable, therefore they can be used, uh, but that could that will be challenged in court and uh, that could change. Uh, but right now it's um, uh, uh, artwork and uh, uh, words and any, any content that's generated by AI is not copyrightable. But I think the real gripe that those companies have is that these models were trained off the copyrighted content. And then they, I think they've got a case there. Very good. Thank you for that answer. Any other questions from anybody? Yeah, there are a couple in line. You mentioned that one in nine buyers sold crypto to help fund a down payment. Do you have any data on um, age group? Is that a certain generation doing that? Are those are Gen Ys or did the study not have generational information? Uh, the that was uh, one in nine of all buyers. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what the breakdown by age is, but if you just search like uh, Redfin crypto one and nine down payment, you'll, you'll, their, their survey will come up. It might've even been one in eight. Do you have any advice for talking to buyers and sellers to help them overcome the stigma of crypto being a scam? That's, that's a tough one because there are so many scam projects in crypto that you have to be careful. Like I'd say 95% of blockchain crypto is a scam. Uh, the other 5% is, you know, some of the most beautiful technology ever created, but it's, it's going to take, it's just going to take time. I mean, in 2013, Bitcoin was best known for like uh, buying drugs online and murder for hire. So it, it's come a long way since then. Like people are using it to buy homes, but uh, if, if the, uh, this continues to be a world that without any regulation or consumer protection, and there continues to be these massive public crashes like the FTX stuff we saw at the end of last year, uh, the industry won't be able to sh uh, shake that stigma for, for quite a while, in my opinion. Um, it, it, it'll probably be decades. All right, very good. Mr. Conroy, thank you very much for your time today. The information was very valuable. Have a good day. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Our final speaker for this morning is Dr. Jessica Lautz. Dr. Jessica Lautz is Deputy Chief Economist and Vice President of Research at the National Association of Realtors. The core of her research focuses on analyzing trends for both NAR members and housing consumers. Through management of surveys, focus groups, and data analysis, she presents new and innovative ways to showcase results. Dr. Lautz discusses research findings in major media outlets and international presentations. In 2022, Dr. Lautz was named a RSI Media newsmaker and 
in the influencer category. Good morning, Dr. Louts, and welcome. The floor is yours. Hi, good morning. How are you all? Um, it's good to join via Zoom this morning. Uh, I, I know that I think we're all a little tired of Zoom, but it has allowed me actually to already visit uh, our realtor friends in Maryland this morning. Uh, I'm coming to visit you and then I'm going to join folks in Oregon uh, when it's still morning for them, but afternoon for me. So I'm really excited that I can share all of this great information. Um, and my worst nightmare, honestly, as a researcher is for the research just to sit on the shelf. So it's great to be able to, to share this info. Um, I think you have a printout of the slides, but those of you who are joining via Zoom as well, uh, we will make sure that you can get a copy copy of this PDF so you don't have to write down so many copious notes, um, although you, of course, are welcome to do that as well. Uh, let me jump in. We are obviously in a very different real estate market today than we have been six months ago or a year ago. Um, in just reflection of uh, where we were a year ago, if we can remember that, in the real estate market, we had the lowest inventory we actually had ever recorded before. Uh, in January, we tend to have very low housing inventory. It's not common for someone to say, you know what, I want to pop my home on the market, jar it down in the middle of holidays we're all celebrating New Year. Um, but we do know that many people starting in the spring market obviously are ready to sell. And so when we look at that on a cyclical basis, it is quite common, uh, but just never this low of inventory. Uh, when we look at the market today, we have slightly more inventory, but many markets in the country have less inventory today than they certainly did uh, before the pandemic. Uh, looking at the marketplace, we know that that is really driven a lot of home price increases uh, that we are continuing to see. Typically, when interest rates go up, home prices stabilize, and we are starting to see that stabilization uh, instead of that 25 or in some areas of the country, 45% per increases on a year-over-year -year basis, we are starting to see that slow into single digits. And that's, that's definitely a good thing for consumers out there today who are trying to enter into the real estate market. I want to give you just how consumers are dealing with this. When we think about the rise in rates as well, we know that that has added on, if we compare that to one year ago today, looking at rates at 3.4%, now at 6.3, we know that that jump has translated into a typical home buyer paying $700 more for a mortgage in just one year. So when they're thinking about $700 more per month for that mortgage, that could be quite difficult to fathom. Uh, really being able to pay for that. And so we know a lot of consumers have dropped out in the market just because they can't afford it. When we look at this, what we can see is that days on market as a result has ticked up some. We were at an all-time low of just 14 days on market for two straight months. And now we're up to 24 days on market. What's important to note is that this is still actually relatively low. So if we look at this historically and we back this out to 2011, what we can see is that typical days on market were actually 96 days. So a very long period of time, a very different conversation to have with a seller to set that expectation that your home could very well be on the market as a median it could be on the market for three months in comparison to today where the vast majority of homes are moving under a month. So we know that uh, still quick pace in the marketplace, just not the same pace as perhaps six months ago. So when talking to sellers, that can be quite the difficult conversation to have and set that expectation that this is not the same market that the seller down the street may have had. 
We also know the number of offers for every home that's listed has ticked down and it was at an all-time high in March of this year, or March of 2020 rather, of 5.5 offers for every home that's listed. Now it's at 2.3. So we're right in line. You can see before the pandemic, before that anomaly, before a lot of people were pushed into the marketplace, we can see that that's actually quite in line with what we have seen historically. 2.4, 2.5, 2.3, all of those right around that median of what we have seen historically for number of offers for every home that's listed. So a much healthier marketplace today uh, but unfortunately, that rise in rates pushing a lot of consumers out of the marketplace unless they can afford to purchase that home today. We also know, you know, something that happened during the, the pandemic that I think is quite unusual is this wave in contingencies. Now, we do not have hard data on this before the pandemic started. So I have to say that this is, you know, just in the last couple of years with looking at this data, I don't know what the normal is. And we only started collecting this because realtors reached out to us and said, we are seeing this and we need data. Is this happening in every market? And in fact, it was. Uh, we saw the height of the market that about a third of consumers, just under a third, were waiving that inspection and waiving the appraisal contingency. Now we see that has ticked down, but we still see that 16% of the market is waiving the appraisal, 22% of the market waiving the inspection. It may be very possible that a consumer is really seeking a home so so desperately, and they're making so many concessions on that home that they're willing to waive these. But also once they're in that home, they know that they have to remodel that property. They're aware of that. They're aware of problems that that property may have. And that's their intention anyway, because of the lack of inventory, they may be willing to do that. We also know that 16% of consumers who are waiving the appraisal contingency this is pretty unusual, but we do still see that a quarter of the market is paying all cash. They don't need that appraisal contingency within that transaction to make that transaction go forwards. Right, so jumping in here as well, one of the other trends that we had seen when we had the lowest inventory that we ever had recorded this last January, a year ago, we saw a massive amount of consumers come into the market and say, I'm not actually buying a primary residence. I'm buying an investment property or a vacation property. So perhaps flipping that property, understanding that they could have very quick equity gains in that property as home prices rose uh, so dramatically. They also may be looking at a vacation property, perhaps it's a cabin, perhaps it's a nice property that they'll go to a couple times a year, but then on the side, they're also going to rent that property out. So it's not a strict definition of what a vacation property is or an investment property because they're using that property for a dual purpose. When we look at this today, we're down to 14%. That's right in the norms. You can see there's a lot of volatility on this data on a monthly basis, but we do see that that 22% is outside of that norm. It's much higher during that time period because of that lack of inventory. Really, if you post that there's a lack of inventory of everything, investors are going to come in. Whether that's Beanie Babies, T-shirts, or homes, investors will find a way to jump into that marketplace. So now we do see that right in line with what we have seen historically. And that's a better scenario for potentially those first-time homebuyers out there. We're still seeing them quite low today, but moving forward, perhaps we see an opportunity for high-income first-time homebuyers to move into the market who can pay for those slightly higher rates than what we were seeing a year ago. 
One of the things that I think is incredibly important to convey today is just that this is a very different market than a year ago, but it is a different market than 2008 as well. And we see so many comparisons when we look at those headlines and Instagram reels or TikTok videos about what this market is and comparing it to 2008. And it kind of drives me a little crazy to see the misinformation that absolutely has been out there. When we look at this, what we can see is that back in 2008, in March of 2009, it was actually March of 2009, we had half of realtors, 49% of realtors were working with a distressed client at that time period. They had a foreclosure or a short sale. They did not have equity in their home and they needed to let go of that property. Today it's 2%. And it's been bouncing around one, 2% on a monthly basis. It really is not changing much. And the reason why is because of the equity that people have in their homes. So as these home prices have gained so dramatically and it's been so hard for home buyers, it's been quite good for homeowners. And for someone who has owned their home for 10 years, which is the typical time frame to own a home is 10 years, they have about $200,000 in equity, give or take. Every local market's different based on local home prices. But if you have $200,000 in equity, even if something really dramatic in your life happened, like a job loss, like a death in the family, you would not be at risk of losing your home. I think it's really important to convey the facts to people when they talk about the housing market and should we see these foreclosures come into the market? Well, the answer is no. It's very unlikely that we would have this scenario where these uh, where these sellers would be at this loss uh, today. When we're looking at the marketplace, of course, it's important to know what's coming next, but I have to set this with, we are in a different marketplace. And there's three main reasons why this market differs from 2008. So looking at this today, the first one is tight lending standards. It's very hard to obtain a mortgage today. You have to have a high credit score. You have to have high income standards. You have to be able to prove your income. You can't just be a gig worker in the gig economy and not be able to approve it. Uh, you really do have to have this. Uh, you also have to have a, a solid credit score and a low debt to income ratio to be able to qualify for a mortgage today. We do not see subprime lending in this marketplace. We have seen arms come in. So looking at the 5-1 arm or looking at uh, a 10-1 arm, I have to say I'm not super concerned about this as long as it's not subprime lending and it has not been. So those are conventional loan products. The other thing that makes this environment different from what it had been in 2008 is we have very low housing inventory. During that time period, we actually had uh, about 4 million units in the market. Today, we have about 1 million units in the market, give or take on a monthly basis. So really, we see a very, very different marketplace today than we did during that time period. We know we've been underbuilding for a solid 10 years. Uh, it is very difficult to get these homes to market uh, and builders are really struggling, even if they have an increase in housing starts, even if the intention is there and they're selling those properties to, to consumers to actually get those properties built. And so I know we have all heard about someone either in our personal or professional lives who purchased a home, uh, a new build property, and that home product was delayed and delayed and delayed. And many of those contracts actually canceled and that buyer is back into the buying market. After all, they have to buy an existing property versus a new build property. 
Builders are running into lots of problems because of the rise in rates. They're building a more expensive product. They have to look out for their bottom line. And they're facing the same supply crisis as we all are uh, for many goods. Though many of those pipelines have been fixed, they did run into significant problems over the last couple of years. They also have labor shortages uh, that they're running into as well, being very difficult uh, to put those products into the market. And then just thinking about impact fees and density restrictions, and all of these are making it difficult to build these new homes. All of that said, we're short by about six and a half million new homes in the U.S. market, uh, and that's really holding back consumers because if those products were there, you know there would be a buyer for them. All of this is being faced at the exact same time that we have a very different demographic situation than we have had in the past. Uh, and I'll show you a chart on this that really hits this home, but looking today at both household formation of young adults. They are here. Millennials are really driving this. I know we blame them for a lot of things, but also this is a good thing when we look at the housing market because they are here and they are consumers and they want a place to live. We also know that people are staying in their homes for longer periods of time. So as we see seniors who traditionally would have looked to nursing homes uh, or look to family members' homes, that, that is happening. But we also know that a lot of people are saying, I just want to age in place. This is the property that I want to be in. This is where I've lived for years and I have no intention of moving from this home. Uh, so we see that people are doing so uh, at larger rates than we have in the past. And perhaps thinking about as realtors out there, knowing your clients, knowing that uh, you may need to think about contractors and, and keeping those referrals up to those contractors, because I'm sure that'll go back to you uh, in the end as well and just build on that relationship. If we look at this today, what we know is that Harvard has actually said, Harvard University has said that only two to 3% of homes in the US are actually suitable to age in place for a universal house design to be able to have those wide enough doorways and entryways, low enough countertops, safety in the bathroom, all of those features that you really do need in a home to be able to age in place comfortably. Uh, they're just not available in the US housing stock, especially thinking about how old our homes are. So keeping that in mind, um, we do know this is a different demographic situation. All right, so all of this said, looking at the forecast into 2023, we do expect that home sales will decline by 7%. So that's the expectation looking overall for the year. Of course, every local market is gonna be different. We have seen a lot of home buyers uh, coming into some markets pretty strong and heavy. Um, may not necessarily see that. They may stay put. Uh, we know there's a lot of CEOs saying, you have to come back into the office. Uh, you need to be there five days a week. Not necessarily hearing five days a week, but I am hearing a lot of employees needing to come back to the office more frequently. So perhaps those further out outer suburbs not seeing this, this uh, jump that they had. That being said, I'm not entirely sure. I'll show you some data on that too. As far as home prices, that's the big question too, right? Is what's gonna happen with home prices. We expect they're gonna be flat moving into 2023. Some of that has to do with the rise in rates. Some of it has to do with <coughs> the anomaly that we have seen of home prices really push up that double digits in the last couple of years. This is a good thing, certainly for first-time home buyers. Uh, one of the things to keep in mind, though, is we expect that half of markets, home prices are actually going to increase, continue increasing. Half of markets, they may actually decline. So perhaps uh, looking at those California markets that have been quite hot, uh, Boise, Idaho, quite hot. So perhaps a cooling effect in those areas as well. 
All right, the virtual world. I am joining you via Zoom today, obviously. And this is just continuing to happen uh, really as we look at marketplaces around the country. We know that the virtual world is really involved in real estate. Um, something that I think is quite fascinating, if we think at the beginning of the pandemic, before the pandemic started, if we think about the before times and really looking at that, thinking about buying a home and really just only seeing it virtually and working with your agent, having that trust factor, but not actually physically stepping foot in that home would have been something from, I think, a very rarity uh, we would not have seen in the marketplace. Today, we actually see 9% of consumers are not physically seeing that home uh, before they actually go to the closing table. Perhaps that final walkthrough is where they're seeing it. They're purchasing that home with the reliance on their agent. They're doing this hand in hand with their agent. Their agent is telling them perhaps in this walkthrough through a virtual tour, FaceTiming this home, telling the client what this home sounds like, what the home smells like in a way that that consumer would not be able to actually get there. Perhaps this has to do with a pandemic at the very beginning when we first started collecting this data back in 2020 and April of 2020. But now I think it actually has to do with the lack of inventory and the distance that people are moving. Because if you're moving a far distance away, it's very possible you can't just drop everything, book a flight and get there or drive several hours to get to that home that you're moving into or looking at. And if your ideal home comes on the market, you're working with a realtor, you wanna make that transaction move forward. So we're still seeing 9% of the home buying market is doing this. I have to say this has to be very stressful for agents out there who are working with these clients in, in that situation. One of the big things that has been talked quite a bit about in the last year is just this push to outer suburbs, to small towns and to rural areas. And I'm gonna do it too. I'm gonna talk a couple of slides on this because we really do have hard data on this now. And I think it's pretty fascinating. I will say that for this slide, this is self-reported data. So while someone says they're moving to a small town, it very well could be the actual definition of it, an outer suburb, it could be a suburban area, but it would be small to them. So we know that small and mid-sized cities have been quite popular uh, in comparison to large cities in the last couple of years. The three main reasons for this is because one, affordability, that's top of mind for everyone, really needs to be underscored here. Uh, the other factor too is that um, we also know that people are moving because of remote work trends. I've touched on that, but that really is a big driver. We still see that a third of home buyers are looking for um, someplace that actually does have uh, a home office. And so that is that is very important for them as well. We also see that moving for friends and family and that proximity to friends and family is quite important. And so we see that a lot of people are saying, where is my support system? Maybe that matters for elder care. Maybe that matters for child care as daycares have been closed. But we see that home buyers are doing that. Uh, maybe their support system is down the block or it could actually be within their home as well. And I'll show you some data on that. As we see this transition into these small towns and rural areas, we also know that people are moving longer distances to get there. 
it had been traditionally between the years of 1989 and 2021 that people were just moving 10 to 15 miles. Today, we see the typical distance moved is actually 50 miles. That is a very large change in one year to have that jump. To really underscore this trend for repeat buyers, so someone who is placing their past home in the marketplace and then going to purchase their next home, they're actually moving 90 miles. For me to think about moving 90 miles really means that I don't know that local area at all. I may know my neighborhood and the stores that I go to and the coffee shop that I go to, but I do not know a neighborhood that's 90 miles away in that, in that way that I know my local neighborhood. So for that buyer who is moving that distance, they really are really placing a lot of expertise on that agent that they're working with to be that expert in that local market. And I think that's really important to know that transition that's happened in the last year. I think it's also something to watch to know that if this continues, because the main driver of this is affordability, I suspect that it continues, but this is not something that we actually forecast. So it's just my hunch that that is something that will continue is that people will continue moving long distances. I'm also going to show you some age stats, but because we do see a growing segment of senior repeat buyers, it's possible they're chasing the grand baby and that grand baby does not live down the block. And so they're moving further distances for that as well for that family support system. And so that really does put a very different location for them as a buyer. All right. So I think this is everyone's uh, both favorite topic and perhaps heated topic. Oh, my speaker changed. Um, hopefully you all can still hear me. That was very strange. Um, we do see that people are really moving. Um, yes, we can hear. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Um, and it switched back. Okay. <laughs> uh, love technology when it works. Uh, all right. So we do see that millennials are the largest segment of home buyers today, which is why I'm going to focus a little bit of attention on them. Also, they're the growing segment that has household formation right now. So I think it's really important to talk about them and to talk about these consumers who are coming into the marketplace. So let's jump in. On this chart, what I'm showing you is everyone in the U.S. today. So you, me, everyone in the room, everyone on Zoom, all of us. When we look at this chart, we're looking at the little pandemic babies who were born in the last year. So they're represented in the green. We can also see in these gray bars that it's not that common to make it past 90, unfortunately. So we see the bars getting shorter and shorter. Just fewer people in that, in that age category. Smack dab in the middle of this chart is the millennial generation. I think this becomes really important when we think about uh, these young adults today. And I'm going to walk through this a little bit here. One, we can see just by the sea of blue here that this is the largest generation. It spans the longest time period, but it also, there's more of them than anyone else. We can see that they're overwhelming the baby boomers now, uh, which are represented by the yellow Gen Xers. Those who are on the call, those who are in the room, you're used to being ignored. You are the smallest generation and you are wedged in between these boomers and this millennial generation. When we look at the millennial generation, it's also really important to note that between the ages of 32 and about 
through 26-ish is the biggest population in the U.S. And so it's most common to be that age than anyone else in the U.S. right now. It is most common to be those ages. So it really is that peak time period when people are establishing their own home, when they're going from a renter household into traditionally buying their first property. So when we think about the lack of housing inventory and how that's really a struggle today and how we need to build more housing inventory, we really are talking about these young adults really putting pressure onto this home buying market. The median age of a first-time home buyer is 36 years old today. And I'm going to touch on this in the next couple of slides here, but this becomes very important too. So that's the red bar. And when we think about this, the median age has really gone up quite dramatically in the last year. And I'll show you some data on this, but it really does get to these young adults could be saving for that down payment and saving and really struggling to find that first property. When we look at first-time homebuyers overall, we can actually see that share has dropped. It's now at 26%. It's the lowest share we've ever recorded at NAR. It had been 40% of the marketplace. When we look at the 50% mark, that's actually when we had a first-time homebuyer tax credit. We had a lot of inventory during that time period and it pushed a lot of buyers into the marketplace. <laughs> Sorry, um, two back to back and then I lose my voice. So we're gonna keep going through and I have plenty of liquids on my desk. So we are all good to go. The 30% mark was back in the 1980s. We had double digit interest rates during that time period. And it was very difficult for first time home buyers during that time period. If we think about it today, we do have significantly lower interest rates, but we don't have the housing inventory. We also know that wages have not kept pace with the home price gains that we have seen today. So that's really the big difference here is the home price gains and income today, and really that gap uh, keeping pace. We also know that there's factors outside of the home buying market. So outside of inventory and home price gains, we also know that there's uh, problems when we look at the rental market. Last year, we actually know that there were bidding wars on rental properties, people pushing up the rise of rent. Uh, we also know that some landlords needed to increase rent uh, and did. And so rental prices went up by 30, 40, 50% in some areas of the country, uh, really astronomical gains. And unfortunately, it's quite difficult to save for anything in that environment, thinking about the down payment. For first-time homebuyers today, I have to say that those who are entering the market are doing so quite creatively. Uh, we know that 5% of first-time homebuyers, I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a pretty interesting stat, 5% are actually buying as a roommate. So they're actually doubling up and saying, why don't we just pool our funds together to be able to purchase a home this way? We also know that a sizable share of first-time homebuyers actually don't have kids in tow. So if we think about first-time homebuyers historically, we may have thought of them as a newly married couple, having a baby, buying a home. Today, I think we really need to upend those uh, myths that are kind of out there. When we look at first-time homebuyers today, we actually know that only half of them are married. There's a growing share of singles who are purchasing homes, uh, unmarried couples in the marketplace, and again, those roommates. 
We also know that there's a lot of first-time home buyers who do not have children. So child-free households, freeing them up perhaps to buy a bigger home uh, or a more expensive home, a nicer home because of that buying power. So it really is a big difference today from what we are seeing. We know that birth rates are down, but people are also having kids later in life. So both of those factors really factoring into those first-time home buyers and how that is changing. When we look at those dynamics, of course, it does change what that first-time home buyer needs in that property location. So thinking about their needs for being close to schools moves down the list because they don't have children, but being in a walkable neighborhood, being close to that dog park, being close to that commute, all of those quite important, as well as that housing affordability, that really is the key component there. When we look at the age of first-time home buyers, these first-time home buyers have jumped. They are now 36 years old, up from 33 last year. Um, you can see that this, this blue was actually pretty boring and flat before this last year. So really staying within a pretty tight range of 28 and 33 was the typical age for first-time home buyers. Uh, we now see that first-time home buyers are essentially closer to 40 than they are to 30. I do think that this is an interesting phenomenon. Unfortunately, it does mean lost housing wealth for these first-time home buyers. That may mean that they're purchasing a home that perhaps is their family home right now, or perhaps they're, they're making a trade later on in life that we would have seen done in a much younger age. If we look at the age of repeat buyers, the age of a repeat buyer back in 1981 was actually 36 years old. So the same age as a first-time home buyer today. I think this is a very, very interesting, uh, really big switch that has happened here. If we look at the typical age of a repeat buyer today, they're now 59 years old. So really uh, a much different type of buyer and what their needs are. If we think of that 59-year-old buyer, they very well could be purchasing a home that they plan on moving into in the next couple of years, being in retirement. That's the median age. So we know that half of these buyers very well could be in retirement or that could be very well within reach. Uh, they're purchasing this primary residence home. They're planning on staying there for a long period of time, essentially aging in place again. They could have kids in tow, but they very well may not. Those kids could be well off living independently and into college at this point or, or past that point as well. Uh, so this is a very different type of buyer than had we seen uh, 10, 15 years ago in the marketplace today. I think what's really important to note too is that while we have seen this uh, smaller share of first-time home buyers in the market, there's a lot of young adults who moved home. So looking at census data, what we have seen is that uh, uh, nearly 18% uh, in 2020 of young adults actually lived at home. Um, it, it ticked downwards a little bit this last year to 17%. I think this is pretty fascinating, this trend. Some of this has to do with because they had to, some of it's because they wanted to, uh, but we do see this trend happening. Uh, remote workplace trends, again, I think drove this, but also job losses, college online, remote learning, all of those being factors uh, in how this allowed a lot of young adults to move home. If we look at this back in the 60s, 70s, uh, 9, 8%. So truly it's something that we did not see if we look at this data historically. <clears throat> 
On the flip side, while this could put a lot of pressure on parents for these young adults living at home, I think it also has been quite good for those first-time home buyers out there today. We actually see that 27% of first-time home buyers actually move directly from their family members' home into homeownership. So essentially skipping rent. Um, they didn't have to pay rent, and so this allowed them to move into homeownership. It's the largest share that we have seen making this migration from this family member's home into ownership, uh, up from 21% just the year before. If we look at this back in the 1989, it was at 15%. So really, this, this is a very large jump in the share who are doing that. Again, speaking to the rise in rents last year, this is the way that first-time homebuyers, I think, are, are moving into homeownership is really with family support. We also know that 22% of first-time homebuyers did have down payment transfers of wealth from friends or relatives. So thinking about uh, either a gift or a loan from essentially the bank of mom and dad, and this is allowing them into homeownership as well. I have to say, you know, just looking at this on a broader scale, it's very good for these first-time homebuyers who are able to enter home ownership with this, but there's so many other Americans where this is just not within reach to move home with mom and dad first and be able to save for that down payment uh, that way and pay off debt. But just thinking about that, perhaps a 36-year-old who lives uh, hundreds of miles or thousands of miles even from their, from their family this would be quite difficult to imagine that sacrifice to be able to do that. Uh, so it is available for some young adults, but for many, this is just not something that's possible. What I do think is important to note here too, is I talked about first-time homebuyers really changing what they need from a neighborhood, but something that has absolutely changed too for young adults today versus young adults 10, 15, 20 years ago is that this generation of young buyers really does place importance of being close to friends and family in a way that retirees do today. They are the most likely young millennial buyers to say, I want to be close to friends and family. They are equally likely to say that as retired seniors. So as we think about this generation and thinking about the closeness of family, it really is something that is quite important to them. So maybe they moved back home, they liked their neighborhood, and now they want to move down the street from mom and dad. I do think all of this, though, again, talking about the pressures that are placed on realtors today, I think this adds more pressure too, because if you're purchasing this home with the bank of mom and dad, moving from mom and dad's home, you have a lot of expectations for your property that perhaps past generations certainly didn't. And your parents are probably placing, or the parents of this first-time homebuyer are placing a lot of pressure as well on this first-time homebuyer, what their first home should look like. Does it meet reality? I'm not sure. Maybe if mom and dad are paying for it, but I do think these expectations have changed and, and really thinking about mom, dad, in-laws, all of those folks being involved in that first-time homebuyer transaction. All right, moving onwards from this, I, I do think that there are some other interesting changes that are happening when we think about financing. Uh, so one of the things that I think is really important to note right now is because of the competition that has ticked downwards, this could actually be a good time for these young buyers, these first-time home buyers out there today. But I have to say that there's a lot of misinformation out there about what a down payment is, especially if you're talking to mom and dad about what the typical down payment is. You know, One of the outdated ideas is that you need 20% down for a down payment. But of course, you all know there are 
FHA loans and VA loans and loan products available that you can actually get into a home much sooner. Putting that information out there right now, especially, I think could be quite important. We know that a lot of FHA borrowers in the last year actually lost out repeatedly on placing bids on homes and they lost out to all cash buyers or someone who has quite a bit of equity moving into that home instead. This could be the opportunity to compete. Uh, so I think <laughs> another quiz here, a poll popped up. Um, so I think really putting that information out there into the hands of consumers uh, could be quite important. When we look at buyers who uh, finance their home versus paying all cash, we know that this has changed pretty dramatically. Uh, so seeing in the last year, the equity that has been earned for homeowners uh, has allowed many repeat buyers to actually pay all cash for that home. So 17% are actually paying all cash on their property um, as opposed to financing that home purchase. Uh, again, for that typical um, owner who has owned their home for 10 years, they actually have about $200,000 in housing equity. So especially if they're moving to a more affordable location, they would have quite a bit of equity to be able to, to place on that home or finance a very small portion. For first-time homebuyers, that's just not available. Uh, for the vast majority of them, just 3% paying all cash. Again, when we look at that consumer belief of what the typical down payment is, 35% think that you need 16 to 20% down for that down payment. 10% actually think you need more than 20% down for a down payment. So putting the correct information out there for consumers could be quite helpful. When we look at the typical down payment, it was just six to 7% for recent first-time home buyers. So really thinking about a much smaller down payment than what they think they need. 17% uh, of repeat buyers actually, uh, that was the, or the typical down payment was 17% for repeat buyers. Uh, so knowing that they are not uh, even putting down that full 20% as well. I want to touch on senior buyers a little. You know, this really is a, a very, very different environment. Uh, and, you know, we talk a lot about the myths about young adults today, and we talk about uh, the misconceptions that we may have. But for senior buyers, there are absolutely a lot of myths out there, too. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about my godmother who turns 82 uh, in March and just how different she is as a consumer than thinking about even my grandmother at the same age. Um, looking at her, I, I know that in the last year, uh, she's remodeled her home, uh, her, her primary residence home where she's lived forever, uh, where it is a two bedroom, two bath home. She has no intention of leaving the home that has 15 stairs going in and out. Um, when she remodeled her home, she did her kitchen, she did her bathroom. And I asked her, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Tell me about it. Show me pictures. She lives in Seattle. So I, I haven't seen the remodel since uh, she, she did it. And she asked me some questions afterwards and she, um, we were on vacation together and uh, we were talking and she was like, you know, it's really hard, you know, to get in and out of the, the, the bathtub. You know, I'm wondering, I, I just, you know, for resale, uh, I really just don't know about that walk-in shower, if that's a good idea or not. And I'm thinking in my head, you're 82 years old. If you need a walk-in shower, you should be putting in the walk-in shower. You just remodeled. What are you doing? Uh, that was not something she did uh, when she remodeled her home, and she's still debating whether she should do it, but she's really concerned about resale. 
So I think when we think about this, we really need to be talking to consumers in a different way, perhaps. Uh, universal design is good for universal design. So um, the, I, I love that she's thinking ahead, uh, but in the home that she has fully paid off that she owns by herself, uh, perhaps she should be thinking about her too. Um, Looking at, at these buyers, we really have to be thinking about all the tech that they're using and using quite comfortably. So I, I know that you had Dave Conroy talk about tech, um, but I do think it's really interesting how these seniors are embracing it. Thinking about smart home features, uh, that could be something that is really makes life easier for someone who's aging in place to tell Google to turn on the lights in the middle of the night uh, if they need to get up, uh, making sure that they have all the bells and whistles to, to stay safe in their home uh, could make life just a lot easier. Uh, also, we know that today's senior buyers are moving quite a long distance. I talked about the miles moved, but they're feeling quite comfortable chasing the grandbaby and moving to neighborhoods where that young family may live. Um, one of the things that I think is really important here too is that downsizing is out. Uh, this, this has not been something that we have seen in the data recently. They may be buying a, a newer space, a more affordable space if they can find it, but not necessarily a smaller place. And so this is something that I think uh, we is one of those myths that, that's quite persistent in today's housing market is that seniors will downsize and that's just not happening. Uh, many of them expect that their family will be there and they will come and visit for the holidays. And so keeping those extra bedrooms is quite important to them. Also, they, they really are buying their forever home. There is really no intention to move into a nursing home, assisted living. And we especially know during the pandemic that uh, the economics of those ha have actually um, been trending downwards. And so we have not seen that. Something that I think is really important to you is that we have to think of today's seniors a little differently. Uh, Grace and Frankie, great TV show. If anyone's watched it on Netflix, um, I just finished it myself and loved it. Love the ending. Um, and I have to say that there's a lot of people purchasing as roommates. I know I talked about this with first-time homebuyers looking for affordability and purchasing, uh, but a lot of seniors are doing it too. Affordability, certainly companionship as well. Uh, so thinking about homes in different types of ways. When we talk about seniors, I do think it's important to talk about multi-generational living. Um, it's typically your Gen X buyer who is purchasing this multi-generational home or even an older millennial. So now they're hitting into their 40s and this could be quite important as well uh, to think about where their parents are. Uh, the main reason for purchasing this multi-generational home has been for seniors to move into this family member home. And so we are seeing this ha has gone up quite up at the very beginning of the pandemic. It, it went up to 15% of all buyers. Now it's at 14%. Um, also, we've already talked about these young adults boomeranging homes. So it may not just be one factor here. It's very possible this Gen Xer could have uh, this aging parent, could have this child who's boomeranging back. They have all these financial pressures. They even could have a kid under the age of 18 all of those generations living within one home together um, and really trying to find a big enough, nice enough home to be able to accommodate everyone uh, and where everyone needs to go during the day, whether that's work or school or staying put. 
Obviously, we have seen a very big struggle with daycares and childcare facilities over the last couple of years, staying open, having enough, being affordable. Um, so while the caregiving could be for this older adult, I do think the caregiving in many scenarios goes both ways. So we can see many grandparents taking care of young children who in other scenarios may have been in childcare uh, um, situations, after school care, daycare situations that may not be happening right now. So we do see that caregiving, again, going both ways in that scenario as families support each other. One of the things that really has upended in the last year um, is really looking at how long people are staying put and how long they have stayed put. When we look at how long sellers are holding onto their homes, they're holding onto them for about a decade. Uh, we do see that this is back up to an all-time high. So people having quite a bit of equity when they move on to their new property, uh, moving and really planning on staying there for a long period of time is something that has changed dramatically. When we look at this, for repeat buyers, it's flat. It's 15 years that they're planning on holding onto this property. So they're 59 years old as a median planning on holding onto that property for 15 years. When we look at first-time homebuyers, though, this is something we really should take note of as an industry, is that the entry-level home, the starter home, it's it's really just not there anymore. Because for first-time homebuyers, they're planning on holding onto that home for 18 years. So they're 36 years old as a median age, and they're planning on holding onto it for 18 years. That is a very long period of time. That very well, I think we should be thinking about them living in that primary residence, really that family home essentially and moving directly into that. I think there's a couple of factors at play. One is just the difficulty of finding a home in the last year is very, very hard. And so once they find that, they're planning on staying put. The other factor too is that people financed into very low interest rates, 2%, 3% range. And if you have that interest rate, you may have no intention of ever leaving that home. And that is certainly going to be a factor for them. That being said, they may have to remodel that home, retrofit that home, think of that home in a different way because 18 years from now, you really could be living a quite different life from when you first purchased that home. Certainly other factors too, if you're moving to a farther suburb, to an outer suburb, to a small town, you may have skipped that inner suburb, urban area where you were at by your first condo and now you're moving into the single family home in a far off burb. And so yes, you did essentially skip that entry level property. So seeing this change really has a, a difference here when we think about real estate and that entry level buyer historically moving after five years of ownership, planning on living there for seven, but moving after five. Of course, this expected tenure is likely longer for both repeat buyers and first-time home buyers. But even if it's slightly shorter, it's not that 18 years, maybe we're talking about 15, I'm not entirely sure. I think that we have to wait and see what happens with this data and what happens with these buyers. One thing to keep in mind though, is the main reason to sell for folks is generally historically outside of the pandemic at least, something in your life happens. So whether that's a new job, a new baby, a marriage, a divorce, if you have one of those scenarios, you have to move. So regardless of your interest rate, you're going to have to move if one of those factors happens. So just context to keep in mind, as we look at this pretty eye-popping data, and what does it mean? I'm not entirely sure. We'll, we'll have to see over the next few years if this changes. 
So I've covered it so much ground here, moving from the marketplace into changing demographics, uh, preferences for, for homes. Um, I want to talk about the agent. I, I've spread this out through the presentation, talking about how the agent's pressures and role has changed. Um, and, and just, I think, how your role has really become even more prominent uh, in the last couple of years during the pandemic really being that that go-to person that people are using to, to understand that buying and, and selling process. When we look at buyers, we do see that 86% of buyers are using an agent in that home buying process. Uh, some are purchasing directly from the past owners. So perhaps uh, knowing that past owner, perhaps it's actually a family member that they're purchasing from. So a very different type of transaction. When we look at buyers, what we do see is not only do they want help finding that right home, they need help with negotiation, they need help knowing that local area. And when they pick you, they're picking someone who they want a good relationship with, who they know has a good reputation on the market, who is honest and trustworthy and has worked with someone that they actually know. So they're using and finding you through a referral typically. On the seller side, we do see that 87% of sellers are using an agent in their selling process. They want everything from you. Uh, they really are looking for someone who is that full service agent. And we see that that is being used at the highest rate than anything else in the marketplace today. We see that they want someone who's going to tell them, how in the world do I fix up my home for sale? How do I understand uh, can you stage this home? Can you do the videos? Can you do all the bells and whistles? Because that's how I'm shopping for a home as well. They know that that agent is going to price that home competitively, find that qualified buyer and do that all within a specific time frame. So that's really what they're seeking when they're working with you. They also are going to work with you past that closing table to call you and say, who can you recommend for services, uh, whether that's contractors to come and remodel my place uh, or someone to use to help me move, they are going to call you for all of these recommendations. So have that list ready because uh, they're going to be using you. I wanna just give one final note here. Um, I did not talk about race and ethnicity in this presentation. We have done a lot of work on this topic in the last year. I'm really just giving high level uh, uh, notes on all of these reports that I've talked about. Um, but I do think it's incredibly important as we look at the marketplace just to see the divide in housing today and how unfortunately this is trending the opposite direction of where we want it to trend. Uh, when we look at this, what we can see is that 88% of buyers today are white. Uh, this has increased from 82% just a year ago. Uh, we do know that today, looking at the home ownership gap, it is between black and white Americans that it is just as wide today as when the Fair Housing Act started back in 1968. We want to close this gap. And unfortunately, the last year with affordability challenges, with inventory challenges, this gap is not closed. Uh, we need to be working towards this as an industry. And I know this is a depressing note to end on, but I think it's an important note just to keep in mind. Uh, we know that among Black home buyers, that half of them are first time home buyers. So when we see that drop in first time home buyers, it is likely that we are also seeing this drop in Black buyers. So those two things going hand in hand. Asian buyers also lost ground this year, and we know that this is happening as well uh, because of affordability constraints. Um, so when looking at this, this, this is incredibly important uh, to take a look at as well. All right. So 
that is all that I have for you. Um, but I'm happy to take any questions that you may have as well. Um, as you're thinking about questions, if you want to follow along on social media, uh, we're releasing a ton of new information on a daily basis. So today we'll have an instant reaction on uh, mortgage rates and what that means for consumers. You can share all of that information with your clients um, and really look like the, the best and most educated expert that you can be because now you are. Um, and if you're following along on social, you have all that information too at your fingertips. So absolutely do follow us along. So thank you so much. Um, and I hope that everyone did find this class worthwhile and votes yes. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for your time today. Thank you very much for your time and expertise today, Dr. Lopes. Do we have any questions uh, either online or uh, in the room for Dr. Lopes? Amanda, we good? Very good. There are no additional questions. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Louts, and have a great day. Thank you. And again, thank you to all the attendees here in the room and those of you online. If you're here in person, make sure you turn in your slip and make sure it's filled out completely for your Con Ed credits. Thank you. Now let's go out there and sell something.
All right, I'm gonna hand over the mic then.